We read scripture this morning from John chapter 1, the gospel according to John chapter 1. We read the first 34 verses of the chapter and we do so again in accordance with our treatment of Lord's Day 13. We hear the inspired, infallible word of our God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men, through him, might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? Then he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man 
which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and abode upon him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we read this in connection with Lord's Day 13. In the back of our Psalters on page 8, we have question and answers 33 and 34. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we are also the children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted of God by grace for His sake. Wherefore callest thou Him our Lord? Because He hath redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with His precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us his own property. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, who do you believe the Son of God is? That's the question that we face as we proceed through the names that are given us here in the Heidelberg Catechism. But also this is a question before which all men stand. And it's a question of life and death. There are two different answers that are given to that question, and we have those recorded for us in Scripture. We read in Matthew 16, the confession that Peter made, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In 1 John 4, verse 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. That confession is made by faith, and it reveals life. It reveals the wonder of God's regenerating work in the heart of His child. But there's another confession that some men make. We read of that in John 2, verses 22 and 23. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same, hath not the Father. That is, to reject Jesus Christ as Lord is death. It's separation from God. Now, by God's grace and through faith, we confess that Jesus is Lord. There are three subjects that are addressed here in this Lord's Day. First of all, Jesus' sonship, the fact that He is the eternal Son of God. Secondly, that we are the children of God, that we're sons and daughters of God. And then finally, Christ's lordship over us and our confession regarding the same. We look at them in that order and we see how they're related one to another. That we're the children of God and we belong to God's family because Jesus is the only begotten Son of God and because He is our Lord. 
And so we face the question, each of us individually, is Jesus my Lord? That's not really the question, is it? Because he is Lord of every single man, woman, and child, whether they acknowledge it or not. The question better is this, do you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord? We take that as our theme, confessing Jesus to be my Lord and my God. Noting, first of all, the different sons. Secondly, the transformation that God has worked. And finally, our living Lord. Only begotten Son is the confession that we make concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only natural Son of God. He can only be a son of God, because he is God. And as God, then, he's the natural son of God. One who's the natural son of God is the only begotten. That is, he is the one who is of the same essence, the same being as Jehovah God. We must distinguish in that regard even the second person of the Trinity from Jesus Christ as the son of God. The second person of the Trinity is purely God, but he has no human characteristics. But Jesus Christ now is the second person of the Trinity come into human flesh. We're talking here about the latter. Not so much about Jesus Christ as, not so much about the Son of God as the second person of the Trinity, but as Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. By virtue of his eternal having been begotten and then now taking on human flesh as one who is a man. Now our confession concerning Jesus Christ then is that he is very God. How do we know that? The Bible is filled with repeated expressions concerning his divinity. We read of it here in John 1. John 1 verse 1 is clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now later on, we go to verse 14, and it identifies who that Word was. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that the Word, Jesus Christ, was God, and is God. He was with God. And he is God. We have other passages that speak to the same. 1 John 5 talks about Jesus being the Son of God. And then in verse 20 we read, This is the true God and life eternal. In other words, Jesus, the second person come into human flesh, is God. The church has always confessed this glorious truth. And that's evident from the ecumenical confessions that we have that go all the way back to the early years of the church. And the church argued along this line. Salvation is all of God. Salvation is through Jesus Christ. And therefore, Jesus Christ has to be God. Otherwise, salvation would have some aspect of man. And so Jesus is set forth in the scriptures very clearly before us as God. He's given divine attributes and divine work so that Things that are only attributed to God are attributed to Jesus Christ. For instance, He's eternal. He's created all things. We have that again here in 1 John 1, 
The fact that in verse 3, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He's the creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, God is the creator. Jesus created. Jesus is God. Colossians 1 speaks of that same truth. We read in the Bible that Jesus forgave sin. Only God is capable of forgiving sin. Jesus did work that God alone is able to do. Peter said to Jesus, thou knowest all things. What an astounding confession again. Acknowledging Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. The only one that's omniscient is God. And so Jesus then is ascribed divine attributes. He's almighty. He has all power. No mere man can claim those attributes. Only one who's God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 speaks of Jesus upholding all things by the word of his power. Such is his might, his greatness, and his glory. Another evidence that Jesus is God, which is outstanding, that even you children can appreciate, is the fact that Jesus was worshipped. We know that only God may be worshipped. And early on already, the angels brought a message to the shepherds. And what did the shepherds do? They sought out Jesus and they worshipped him. They worshipped that little babe, acknowledging that little babe was divine. He was God. Similarly, the wise men later, they come and they fall before that little child and they worship him. No mere man is worthy of worship. Only God may be worshipped. And God authorized the worship of Jesus Christ. Now God through the ages led the church boldly to confess this truth. That Jesus Christ is God. The Nicene Creed contains the confession. The Athanasian Creed does. And that was necessary because early on in the church... There were those who denied that Jesus was God. They taught he was a mere man. A really good man, but he was just a man. And so it was necessary that the church rise up and speak clearly to whether or not Jesus was God. Arius was one such heretic. He denied that Jesus was God. And so God raised up Athanasius. A godly man who defended the divinity of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. And Athanasius is one of those outstanding church fathers whom God gave to the church for the purpose of preserving this precise truth that Jesus is very God. Athanasius was exiled five times because he defended the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus Christ. He taught salvation is through God alone and through Jesus Christ alone. At Nicaea, he stood up over against Arius and against his followers. And Athanasius played then a significant role in the writing of the Nicene Creed. Later on, we have the Athanasian Creed, which was written some 30 years later. And even though it bears the name of Athanasius, he was not the one that actually wrote it, but it conveys rather the doctrines and the truths that he so admirably Defended by God's grace. This is a fundamental truth. And yet it's one that's denied by so many. Many insist Jesus was a mere man. He may have been a really, really important man. Even some kind of a prophet. 
an important historical figure, but he was just a man. The Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, they insist Jesus is a son of God. But then they're quick to say, if you press them, he's a son of God just like we are sons and daughters of God. And so that ultimately there's no distinction between Jesus as a son of God and we as the sons of God. That's the confession of liberalism and modernism. If Jesus is not God, the whole Bible is a lie. Our salvation then is at stake. The thread that we find running through the whole of Scripture is this glorious truth. Jesus Christ is God. And that's the marvelous confession that Peter made, which Jesus said, that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the rock. That's the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, how is it possible that God could come into human flesh? The virgin birth explains that wonder. And we deal with that next Sunday, Lord willing. Those churches that claim to believe the divinity of Jesus, but then they teach that Jesus doesn't have the power to save, that he's not exclusive Savior, tip their hand also to this error. You can teach that salvation is 98%, 99% God's work. But as soon as you include that 1% of man, you destroy the truth concerning Jesus Christ and the teaching of God's word. Christ is not God anymore. He's not the alone Savior that the Scripture teaches. More than anything else, that lie leads to the demise of churches and Christians. Those who embrace that Arminian, man-centered theology in time end up with full-blown modernism. And that's what happened in the history of our country. Why is it that the first immigrants to this land were so staunch, but now New England is a spiritual wasteland. The pilgrims tolerated the lie that man contributes a bit to his salvation. And so quickly and easily then, that lie plagued the church. But we have translations in our, of the Bible as well that contribute to this lie. Translations of the Bible that omit only begotten and they replace it with just only son. Now first of all, not only is that bad theology, Jesus is not the only Son of God. God has adopted us as His children as well. So that to teach Jesus is the only Son is incorrect. It's not a proper and appropriate theology. But it's, more importantly and seriously, a subtle denial of the difference between Jesus and us. And often, that kind of a terminology is used then to deny that Jesus is God. And so we find Bible translations that take out begotten. The Grace Psalter hymnal that was adopted by our mother denomination demonstrates reason for concern in that regard. The Apostles' Creed is, is translated this way. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. His only Son, our Lord. No only begotten. Lord's Day 13 in the back of that same hymnal, which we're treating now, reads, Now why is He the only Son? When we are also children. So the whole matter of Jesus being only begotten. And 
lending clarity then to the question, is dropped. Now those changes are made supposedly on the basis that older manuscripts of the Bible are more accurate. But we would take the position that those older manuscripts, of which there's one or two, were not more accurate, but rather were teaching and promoting false doctrine. And precisely the false doctrine that Jesus Christ is not God. And subtly then inserted into the Scriptures that lie. The Catechism takes up the Scriptures now and it brings us into the Scriptures to explain this crucially important distinction between Jesus' Sonship and ours. He is the only begotten Son, the natural Son. We are adopted sons and daughters. And so Jesus is the only begotten. He's the eternal Son. God took His own eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, and He caused Him to be begotten in the womb of Mary as His natural Son. One who is like unto Him in all things, who is of His same essence and being. That Son is the delight of His Father. He reflects the beauty, the glory of the triune God. So that when you see Jesus, you see God. God raised Him then from the dead. And God gave life to Him. So that He's the firstborn of the dead. Three things are associated with the firstborn that are important for us to look at. First of all, the firstborn was the double heir of the father's possessions. So he got twice that of, of anyone else. Secondly, the firstborn was the one through whom the covenant blessing was realized. And so he was the one that would be then in the Old Testament in the line of Christ. Finally, the firstborn was the one who would be the Lord of his brethren. Now that was the stumbling block, wasn't it, for Esau? You children remember that when Jacob blessed, when Jacob received the blessing from Isaac, and then the blessing that was given to Esau was that Jacob would be his Lord and he'd have to submit to Jacob. That was his stumbling block. He was not going to call Jacob his Lord, but it's that last point that we want to consider. And it's that last point that is of significance here. The firstborn was Lord of his brethren. And that was a picture of Jesus Christ. The birthright was rooted in sovereign, eternal election. Determined by God. So that the oldest did not always get the birthright. And again, we see that. Jacob wasn't the oldest. Esau was the oldest. And yet, Jacob is the one who receives the birthright. Judah gets the birthright, not Reuben, Simeon, or Levi, all of whom were older than him. The firstborn, typically, was the one who opened the womb. He opened the way for his brothers and sisters to follow. Jesus is the one who opened, we would say, the womb of God's counsel for all of his spiritual brothers and sisters. There's no way that we would be the children of God apart from Christ and his perfect work already in the counsel of God. And 1 Corinthians 15 uses that same idea of firstborn now to refer to the wonder and the significance of the resurrection. God rose him from the dead as the firstborn 
of many brethren. So that Jesus as the firstborn is the one through whom we are risen. Through whom we have life. He's the central individual and figure. He goes into the womb of the grave. He comes out through a way that never had been passed through before. As the grave has made the doorway now to heaven. And he comes out with a body that's immortal. Now Jesus takes that life and he gives it to our bodies so that our bodies also become immortal. Jesus is the one who's begotten of the Father and who enables us now to be his children so that we are children through him. He's the firstborn. And because of him, we have our identity in the family of God. As the firstborn of every creature, he prepares the way for the whole of the creation to be glorified. He died, not just for his people, but for the creation. Through the cross and the resurrection, he takes the whole of the creation, which is reconciled to God by Christ, and he brings it into the glorious wonder that he ordained. As the firstborn, he is the heir of the covenant. And of all the promises. The head of the covenant. The fullness of all the blessings. And he's Lord. We are children adopted of God by grace for his sake. And that's the important distinction here that question 33 establishes then. Christ alone is the eternal natural son of God. But we are children adopted of God by grace for his sake. God chose us to be conformed to the image of Christ and he adopted us by the wonder of his grace and by his spirit. Now man was created originally as the son of God in a certain sense. And the Bible uses that designation, for instance, to refer to Adam. The genealogy of Christ in Luke 3 verse 38 calls Adam the son of God. Now, the modernists use that to say that, look, that means that all mankind, we're all sons of God. And the whole mankind is a brotherhood by virtue of that reality. And they say then, Jesus then isn't anything special. Jesus was born and he is just one of many brethren. Now, even if it is true that Adam was the son of God by virtue of creation, he was created. And that yet establishes a crucial distinction. Notice the emphasis that, again, John states here, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He wasn't created. He's the creator. Notice the emphasis of John himself. God gives John the Baptist to realize that Jesus was before him. Twice over, he expresses that. In verse 15, for he was before me. Again in verse 27. He was coming as preferred before me. And then later on in verse 30, for he was before me. Now, if you remember, Elizabeth was pregnant with John before Mary was made pregnant. Mary actually is informed by the angel she's going to have a child. And she comes to Elizabeth and the baby John is already in the womb. Leaps. So who's older? John is older than Jesus. And yet, John says, no, he was before me. Acknowledging the fact that Jesus 
is eternal. Now, Adam was created by Christ. Christ is the one by whom all things were created. And Christ was in the beginning, and he is the one who, with the triune God, created then the family of God. But what happened to Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve fell into sin. And as a result of their fall into sin, they lost the image of God entirely. The true righteousness, holiness, the knowledge of God was lost. They lost their position of sonship. There's no sense in the word, of the word in which Adam and his posterity can anymore be called the sons of God. Rather, the Bible gives them a different designation. They are the sons of the devil. But God intervenes. And God adopts some and he brings them back into the glory of sonship. What a wonder. And that's the wonder, beloved, that we confess this morning. Now this has a faint picture in earthly adoption. Parents sometimes adopt children. They take one who is a natural child of someone else and now that child becomes theirs by a legal Declaration and adoption. God eternally adopts us. Satan had a legal claim on us. Satan said, they're mine. They belong to me. And I'm going to drag them down with me to hell. But God said, no. No one could dispute Satan's bind on us. But God intervenes. And God doesn't just take away those who are legally belonging to the devil, God legally makes them his own. He adopts them into his own family through the cross of Jesus Christ and through his resurrection. So there on the cross, our sin and our guilt was paid for. So the devil has no more claim over us. We've been redeemed. We've been delivered. And we've been purchased from the devil so that the devil no longer has any claim to us. We are legally Jehovah God's. Now we may go astray, as we do. We sin. There can even come a point sometime when a parent says, that child isn't my child anymore because that child is living a life that I don't approve of and I can't tolerate within my home. And maybe even that a parent gets so far as even a child that's been adopted, now he relinquishes that adoption. But God, God will never do that for you and for me, whom he has adopted in Jesus Christ. God says, those children are mine. They belong to me. And though they may stray, I'm going to draw them back to myself with my irresistible grace and by my eternal love. Because those adoption papers were filed with the blood, the precious blood of my own son. The truth of adoption, beloved, is one of the greatest comforts for the church of Jesus Christ. We are the children of God, and we must never lose sight of that. There are so many that don't dare say that. They don't dare confess that they're the children of God. The Bible clearly reveals that we have a right to make that as our confession. In 1 John 3, 1 and 2, that we are the children of God, and that we confess that wonder based on God's goodness, God's mercy, and God's grace alone. Adoption in Jesus Christ is the only basis for my being able to say that I'm a child of God. 
Now, how did God do that? Again, this is astounding. God didn't go into an adoption agency and look at a whole bunch of pictures of different people. He didn't spend some time with them to figure out which ones he would like and which ones he would not like. He didn't choose mere strangers. While we were yet enemies, he adopted us. When we were walking contrary to him, we're not pursuing his will. We're not seeking after his will and his ways. Ezekiel 16 is a beautiful chapter that records our condition as that of a child lying in its blood. Now, all types fail, and the failure there is that in reality, we were dead. We had no life. But Jehovah God then takes hold of that child, gives that child life, and makes that one his own. And that one then forsakes him. But in love, he brings her back and pledges his everlasting faithfulness. This adoption took place in God's counsel from all eternity, and in time, God realized it when, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he reconciled us to himself. And then, by faith in our hearts, gives us to know, I am a child of God. And God works the wonder by faith that we believe that adoption cannot change. That adoption never changes. Again, what a comfort to us sinners who are so sinful. God looks upon us as his children. And nothing can remove that commitment that God has made to us. Why? Because the commitment had nothing to do with me. It was nothing of me. It was not dependent or conditional on anything of myself. It was all on Christ. And on what Christ had done. And his perfect obedience. But God performs a transformation. God not only adopts us. He makes us look like him as well. That's something that earthly adoptive parents are not capable of doing. But Jehovah God. By the wonder of his grace and power. Takes us. And now he makes us so that we are his Image bears, conform to the image of God's dear Son. Now there's a fundamental distinction yet between us and Jesus Christ in that Jesus is God. He's the only begotten Son of God. We're creatures. And yet God takes us into His family now and makes us His own sons and daughters. That's a wonder of God's grace. The source of that adoption? God's eternal decree. God's eternal counsel predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1 verses 5 and 6. This adoption is realized in time at the cross where Jesus made the perfect sacrifice that was necessary. And then he was raised from the dead testifying of his perfect obedience and having accomplished everything that the Father had ordained. That adoption is realized in us through the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, as that Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. And that Spirit works in us the cry, Abba, Father. It's by the Spirit that we now look to God and we say, God is my Father. He's embraced me in love. Because ye are sons, God has sent forth 
the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, verse 6. And the same spirit realizes that adoption by causing us to be born of God, restoring within us that image of Jesus Christ, righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge, making us like unto His beloved Son. We are brought into the kingdom of Jehovah God. And we're brought in now to that kingdom as those who serve a different king. Whereas by nature, we would serve the devil and pursue his will. We now serve Jehovah as our king. We now speak a different language. We now have a different law that governs our lives. We're the children of the light. By God's grace, we celebrate that wonder. That we are children adopted by grace for His sake, highly favored, yet always still creaturely reflections of that divine image. Now that adoption is a legal wonder, but it's accompanied by an organic work that God takes place in our lives. Legally, justification. He declares us righteous. We talk about that wonder, how he takes our sins and he places them on Jesus and he takes the righteousness of Jesus and he imputes that on us. So we talk about double imputation, our sins imputed to Jesus, Jesus' righteousness now credited to us. He goes to work in us then by sanctification in order to make us holy even as he is holy. He claims us as His own. And Jesus Christ enters our hearts by His Spirit. He casts out that stony heart and He replaces it by the wonder of regeneration with that soft, that pliable, that new heart. He replaces the rule of man and the rule of the devil in our hearts with now His rule and His Lordship. He makes us His own property. Now that we've been made the property of Jesus Christ, this is the song of victory of the redeemed church. I am one who belongs to Jesus Christ. During the times of slavery, if a slave had a good master, that slave didn't have to worry about a thing. Everything would be taken care of for him. He had a place to live. He'd have food. Everything was provided. God now works in our hearts this blessed assurance. Jesus Christ is your Lord. He's not just the best Lord you could ever have. He is Lord. And He's one who loves you with an everlasting love so that you don't have to worry about anything anymore. Everything will be provided because the one who owns you, the one who bought you, is the one who will keep you. And He will preserve you. No danger, no matter how great, can harm us. Now by nature, we get afraid. We're scared of things. We fear the events that are taking place in the world around us. The war that's going on in Ukraine. The aggressiveness of China. We fear the inflation and the out-of-control government spending. And we worry a bit about our lives, about the economy, We see sin advancing 
And we worry about our children, our young people. How will they stand? How will they be able to maintain a walk that's right in the midst of this life? We look at ourselves and we see how the devil is advancing in our own lives. And we see the threats the devil poses. No enemy, no matter how great, can bring about your downfall. Because Jesus Christ is Lord. At times, we fall into sin. But again, God in His mercy and in His grace will not allow the gates of hell to prevail against us. He brings us to repentance and sorrow. And He draws us to Himself by His grace. We are eternally the property of Jesus Christ. And that's the glorious song of the church of Jesus Christ. This small confession, beloved, our Lord, is a confession that causes us to weep with joy. Just think again of adoption. Sometimes we think about a situation where someone is brought out of a really, really tragic home life. Or perhaps they're orphaned. And they're brought into a Christian home. They're given stability. They're shown love. And we think, how can that child ever be thankful enough? And sometimes we even can get critical maybe. We think, boy, don't they realize what's been done for them? Beloved, that's you and that's me. Look at what God has done for us. He's done for us something far more glorious than anything any couple can do for a child. And now, how do we live? Don't murmur. Don't complain. Don't take it for granted. Thankful. Thankful to the depths of our being unto all eternity. Confessing, I am not my own. I belong. I belong to a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who bought me with His precious blood. So that nothing, nothing can separate me from the wonder of His love. Beloved, words cannot convey the strength, the comfort that is found in that confession. My Lord. And eternity is not going to be long enough for us to show thankfulness and gratitude to God for this astounding blessing. Through all of eternity, the multitudes of the redeemed will honor and praise Him. As Lord. He's our living Lord. This is His name. We're going through the names that are given to our Savior. Again, what does that mean? The Lord had the rule over His brethren. Judah ruled over His brethren as He was identified as Lord. Now there was always rebellion. There was always oppression. The other tribes would rise up. They would try to rebel against that lordship. Jesus is Lord. Not because he imposes that rule, because he forces it, but because he bought us with his precious blood so that we would be made his property. And now, in love, he makes himself like unto us in order to bring us as citizens into his glorious kingdom. And he makes us soldiers in his army. And we march. We march from victory to victory under the banner of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fighting against our enemies. He's strengthening us in the midst of the battle against temptation. And He doesn't do it by earthly force, by earthly might. 
but by His Word and by His Spirit, with spiritual authority and spiritual power. And all the demons serve His purpose. The devil himself has been conquered. This one, beloved, is your Lord and my Lord. And as Lord, He's responsible for you. Again, what a beautiful concept. We hear a lot about responsibility. Mostly the emphasis falls on man, not on God. The emphasis of the Bible, the emphasis on this confession is on God. All the responsibility for your and my salvation falls on Jesus Christ. All the responsibility is on Him. Now that doesn't mean that we're not responsible creatures. We realize we will give an account. God creates us as such. But this means that Jesus Christ is responsible for me before God. And being joined to Him. Knowing that He's my Lord as His servant, as His slave. I can have peace. Now we're still going to have doubts. Sometimes we have doubts about our salvation. Sometimes we question things. We think, but really does he understand how bad of a sinner I am? Can this grievous sin really be covered? We struggle sometimes to believe that Jesus really is my Lord. But beloved, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That he is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed of God. By faith we confess that. God gives us the faith to do so. And confessing that, we believe that He is all-powerful to, all to forgive sin. My sin. My doubts are dispelled. Any doubts are a denial of His divine power, His divine Godhead. The fact that He is the only begotten who is ruling all things by His power and majesty. He has saved me. He's delivered me so that he is responsible for getting me to heaven and he will not fail. As Lord, he will present all of his adopted brothers and sisters spotless in eternal glory on the basis of his perfect sacrifice. And so the confession of the redeemed church is I belong to the family of God. God is my father for Christ's sake. I've been adopted I've been brought into this family. And already now I have a home in heaven. An inheritance that's being preserved for me as God is keeping me and preparing me for that glorious inheritance. And as I fight and do battle against sin, I do so knowing and believing the victory is certain. He's my Lord. He's defeated all the powers of darkness, all the powers of evil. And He rules me by His grace and by His Spirit. And he set up kingdom in my heart. And increasingly, he subjects me then to his rule and to his will and causes me to bow in worship and adoration of him. And in all the trials that he leads me through this life, what is my confession? He bought me so that he could lead me through these trials because he knows they're necessary to prepare me for that glory. That he has in store for me. And he's growing me in the confession. I am not my own. I belong to him. Now sometimes. He has to treat us. Like a big brother might treat you. Perhaps you remember when you were children. And you got wrestling with your brother. And your brother would pin you down. And he won't let you go until you said uncle. Uncle. 
There are times, in a sense, where God has to bring us to our knees. We've been walking in a manner in which we've been exhibiting the fact that we're lords of our own lives. We're dictating how we live and how we walk. And God then has to bring us to our knees in humility. He has to bring us then to confess, no, I'm not Lord of my life. Thou art my Lord. And by His power, we cast aside then all those other lords. The Lord of money. The Lord of pleasure. The Lord of the body. The Lord of the mind. The Lord of sports. The Lord of books. The Lord even of work. All these other lords. We cast those idols out. And we submit and acknowledge Jesus. He alone is my Lord. He made me something. When by nature I was nothing. I was dead. And he gave me life. And from my lips then must arise the confession of the greatness and the glory of this Lord. He's Lord of my eyes. And where my eyes ought to be looking. He's the Lord of my desires and what I ought be coveting after. He's the Lord of my hands and what my hands should be doing and where they should be going. He's the Lord of my legs and where my legs ought to go. He's the Lord of my fingers. He's the Lord of my time and how I spend my time. He's the Lord of my body and the whole of my life. Beloved, I confess it not only, but I live it to His glory. And so again, we come back where we started. Do you confess Jesus as your Lord? Beloved, with thanksgiving in our hearts, we rejoice In the glorious confession, He is Lord. Amen. Our Father in heaven, strengthen us in the glorious confession that Thou hast worked by Thy Spirit in our hearts. Cause that we might know the comfort, the security, the peace that is ours in Him. And that we might live casting out and putting aside temptation and idolatry And displaying that true thankfulness and gratitude unto thee. As we live unto thee. We pray this for Jesus sake. Amen.